There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is all about helping people create more meaningful and purposeful lives and equipping leaders inside organizations to cultivate meaning and purpose that elicits passion, inspired contribution, innovation, and persevering performance. I talk with my guests to draw on their expertise and share my own experience consulting, speaking, and developing workforces across the globe. Each week in these conversations, I hope you walk away with something you can immediately use in life or work. And if I can do anything to help you along your journey, go to my website at elisecortez.com and use the contact me feature to message me. Let's open a conversation and explore what's going on for you and see how I might be able to help. Whether you want to learn more about developing purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused culture in your own organization to elicit your team's best. You want to see about joining a Catch Fire online community to stoke your own passion, inspiration, or purpose discovery, or you'd like me to speak for your company or conference. At any rate, I'm glad we're connected, and thanks for listening. Now, on to this week's program. With us today is Dr. Gleb Sapersky. He's the author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Known as the disaster avoidance expert, he is on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases by developing the the most effective decision-making strategies via consulting, coaching, and training from disaster avoidance experts. We'll be talking about the numerous kinds of cognitive biases he covers in his book and what we can do to learn how to circumvent them. He joins us today from Columbus, Ohio, which is home of the Buckeyes. Dr. Sapersky, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you so much, Elise. It's a pleasure and go Bucks. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm so glad we found each other. As I told you when we got on the phone, before we got on air, that I, I really take a lot of um, joy and delight in being able to encounter authors like you who teach me something. And I do read the books cover to cover as I did yours. So I really feel like this gives me an opportunity to really learn from you and then share that that learning with, with my listeners. So I have a lot of questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. And as I said, when we were discussing this by email, I'm very impressed. You are the most detailed question. You have created the most detailed questions of any host that I've ever had the pleasure to be interviewed by. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, well, let's let's get right into it here. I, well, I really think it's important that we, we talk about these kinds of things that are going to be so obvious to people when mm-hmm. we bring them up, but talking about gut instincts and decisions and our tendency to make a decision because it just feels right, mm-hmm. right? We've all said and yeah. heard other people say that before. Talk to us about just at, just on a high level why this is a bad idea. It's a bad idea because our feelings often lie to us. When we feel something, you know, you know, people who are depressed, when they feel sad, there's not necessarily anything sad externally to be sad about. When people who are anxious, there's not necessarily any fret out there. They just feel that way. And they because they feel that way, they, they think that that's true of the world. Our feelings in other areas, even when we're not sad or depressed, work the same way. They don't necessarily indicate anything about the world around us. So just because something feels right, something feels true, has no bearing to whether it is actually actually right or whether it is actually true because our feelings are not adapted for the modern environment you might be surprised the modern environment is very complex 
multiple global you know we've had the internet around since the 1990s only and it's changed so much we're not adapted for that our gut reactions, according to the most current research, are actually adapted for the savanna environment. When we were hunters and foragers and gatherers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people maximum. So we are very influenced by the tribal instinct. We like, we feel right about people who are like us, who are similar to us, similar values, similar thought patterns. So that's the tribalism. Then another aspect of tribalism is our desire to climb to the top of the social hierarchy. We feel right about being at the top. So that's another element of things. Now, the big other series of problems with tri- with the our gut instincts is the fight or flight response, which was, again, very important in our savage ancestors for them to jump at a hundred shadows to get away from the saber-toothed tiger. You might have heard of the saber-toothed tiger response. We have many less saber-toothed tigers in our current (laughs) life right now. But we do jump at those shadows. We make immediate decisions that lead us into terrible directions and a great deal of stress. We have so much stress partially because we greatly overreact to threats and we jump in the wrong directions. So the tribalism, the fight-or-flight response, all of those, and just in general, our gut intuitions not being adapted for the modern environment cause us to make really problematic decisions based on feeling that something is right. Very, very well started there for us to really get grounded into where this comes from. And listeners, the idea here and the way we've set this conversation up is we're going to presence some of these cognitive biases that you're going to you're going to recognize for yourselves, and we're going to give you some solutions. So first, we want to surface where why they're problematic, and the next thing is going to be a numerical grounding here. So one of the things that I thought was great about your book, many things about your book are great, but one of the things I really appreciated too is you talk about a study that was published in Leadership IP where 1,087 board members from 286 organizations that forced out their CEOs found that more than 20% of the CEOs got fired for denying reality, meaning they refused to recognize negative aspects about their organization's performance. Could you say more about that? Sure. So for those folks who might have been reading Dilbert, you might recognize pointy-haired bosses in (laughs) your life and pointy-haired CEOs. And you don't want to be too negative about these people. They deny reality. They deny reality because they think they are good. They think their decisions are good. And therefore, they simply can't see and accept, more importantly, accept negative information about the company, negative information about the company's performance. This is a cognitive bias called the confirmation bias. It's one of the biggest cognitive biases out there. And to be clear, there are over 100 cognitive biases that we've discovered so far, and we discover more every month. If you want to check them out, you can go on Wikipedia, look up cognitive biases. You'll see over 100 of them. It's actually, you know, Wikipedia, I don't always recommend it, but in this case, it's a good resource. And of course, my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, focuses on the 30 most dangerous ones for leaders. The confirmation bias causes us to one, ignore information that we don't want to see, and two, look for information that we do want to see. So leaders look for information that tends to confirm their current dispositions, what they believe about themselves and what they believe about the company, and they ignore in that negative information unless they train themselves not to, unless they train themselves not to, and that's pretty rare for people to train themselves not to. So that's how you get these numbers, that over 20% of leaders are fired simply for denying reality. 
And that's a very dangerous, dangerous tendency that all sorts of folks fall into. I mean, look at leaders, it happens in all levels. On the top level, look what happened with WeWork recently, mm-hmm. where the company was worth $75 billion at the beginning of 2019. $75 billion. Right now, it's worth $7 billion at the end of 2019. Oh, wow. And, and that is just because of Adam Newman, simply purely because of him. He took the company. He went forward. He was very confident. He said, you know, we need to go forward. We need to go do an initial public offering. A number of people said that that's not such a good idea because we our governance structure is not that great. But he just went ahead with it. And when external investors looked at the governance structure, they saw that Adam Newman was engaged in a lot of double dealing where he owned some properties and he was leasing them to WeWork. He also had a number of other problems where he owned shares that were worth 10 votes and he was offering shares to sell that were worth one vote per share. So he again, this top of the social hierarchy, he wanted to be the alpha male, retain power. That's a, and that, as a result, they lost trust, confidence in the leadership of WeWork, where most of the value of the company was trust in the future and the strategy of the company. That's why it's worth $7 billion right now. So it's kind of at the top. At the bottom level, you'll see that about half of all new small businesses fail within the first five years. Two-thirds of them fail within the first decade. Again, because of bad decisions by the leadership, because they ignore negative information about the company. Happens at the top, at the bottom, and everywhere in between. That is an excellent example, Dr. Sapersky, to help us really get grounded into why this is such a problem. So that was incredibly um, useful. Thank you for that. Um, Now, I want to go on to another bias that I certainly recognized in myself. I I didn't quite recall there were more than 100 identified, but one that I certainly know that I am terribly guilty of is status quo bias. Mm. And I think about some of the decisions, major decisions I put off in my life that should have been made before. Um, Can you tell us more about this bias so that we can identify where it might be showing up for us and maybe how to start to intervene? We'll talk more about the solutions later, but at least presence that for us. Yes, the status quo bias is one of the biases that really is insidious. It's really problematic for us. What it is about is our tendency to not change when we really should change. We tend to stick too much to the status quo. And the biggest reason behind the status quo bias is our uncertainty about the future. We are more afraid of uncertainty than of a certain loss. Often, we're more afraid of what's uncertain about the future than a certain loss. So we just keep going where we are and we don't change paths. This causes us a lot of problems in a whole variety of areas. No, not simply businesses, but personal relationships. So many people stick with relationships they should not stick with. Personal relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, and so on, that they should leave earlier. It would have been healthy for them, but they still stick with them much longer than they should. In bi- and the same thing happens in business relationships. People stick in business relationships much longer than they should. And of course, in business, in professional lives, people stick in, stay in jobs, career tracks that they really should change even though that they know that they should change it and they don't because of the status quo bias. They're afraid about the uncertainty. And of course, one of the things that you need to do in order to address the status quo bias, perhaps the biggest one, is to learn how to be comfortable with uncertainty. And mm-hmm. this is, again, uh, we're going, uh, an example of a solution to this sort of thing is to Consider what would be the alternatives to this uncertainty. Now, you can stick with your current career track. Where would you get in 10 years? 
What would be happen if you change your career track? What would be an alternative path? So think about that and think about where you would like to be in 10 years from now. That's a good way of addressing uncertainty. And there's a lot of other strategies like this, but this is kind of the way you want to be thinking. It's a very counterintuitive way of thinking, <laughs> but it's the way of thinking that we need to take to be to go from this natural primitive state, which we are all in right now because we haven't been trained. It's like we are at the stage before we learned to eat with our forks and knives instead of our hands. We're all deciding in the way that we eat with our hands. We need to learn how to eat with our forks and knives, go from the natural state to the primitive, from the natural state to the civilized state, to have civilized decision-making, decide with our forks and knives instead of deciding with our hands. Uh-huh, very well said. And on the, on that note, I think it's pretty important to take a question we got from one of our listeners who's listening to this live show. Kim, thanks for listening. She's asking, am I correct to say that, that our gut feeling is always wrong? Our gut feeling is not always wrong. It's just that we don't know whether it's right or wrong. So sometimes if you have negative feelings about someone, it might be that that person is problematic for you, problematic for your life, might be a bad employee. However, often what we find is that when you're interviewing a potential employee, your negative feelings about that employee may simply have to do with that person not being from your tribe. That person, so I'll give you an uh, interesting example. So here I am, uh, I'm in in Columbus, Ohio, which is the home of the Buckeyes. That's the big football team around here. Our big rivals, football rivals, are the Michigan Wolverines. That's our big rivals. We just beat them this Saturday. It was great. (laughs) But I was giving a presentation to a local HR group, the Central Ohio, which is this area, HR group, over 100 HR professionals at the local diversity inclusion conference in 2018. And I asked them, how many of you 100 HR professionals who are making decisions on employment, how many of you would hire a Michigan fan, University of Michigan fan? You know how many raised their hands? Three, three people in <laughs> HR, diversity inclusion conference, would hire a Michigan fan. Oh. This is tribalism at the extreme. Of course, them being a Michigan fan has nothing to do with their job performance. So, but they still wouldn't hire them. And so our negative, it's their negative feelings about these people just because they're Michigan fans. So you can't trust your gut is the key. Our gut may be right or may be wrong, but it's not trustworthy. You should not trust your gut. You should always check with your head. That's why I say with the title of my book, never go with your gut. You should always check with your head and you can determine maybe your gut is right, maybe it's wrong, but you shouldn't trust it. Very useful. Very, very useful. I'm sure the listeners were wondering that same question, Kim. So thank you for posing it. Okay, let's get to another one here. We've, t- we've got time for one more of these that I wanted to, to address, and that's the fundamental attribution error, which I think you also call the, the correspondence bias, mm-hmm. and that is attributing the behavior of other people to their personality and not to the situation in which the behavior occurs. And you talk about a, a very, very interesting example in the book, and I don't know if you remembered or not, if you want me to give it to you, but would you say a little bit more about, maybe share an example, if not that one from the book, and help us understand why this is problematic? Sure. So I give a number of examples in the book, uh, but uh, I think you mentioned something about somebody talking on the phone. So there was yes, a coaching. I'm, yes, I'm a, I'm a coach. That's a consultant and speaker trainer. I was coaching a CEO of a company that had many staff working from home. And he told me about an incident that was a situation where he that involved an employee who had a heated Skype exchange with an HR manager over a conflict that they were having. Now, the Skype call disconnected and the HR manager 
went to the CEO and told the CEO that the employee hung up on her. The CEO fired the employee on the spot immediately. Unfortunately, as the CEO later found out, it was just a disconnection, you know, things happen. But the CEO didn't really think about the issue so so far. The, The CEO attributed negative behavior to the employee just because of what the HR manager said. And this is part of the broader problem of the fundamental attribution error. We tend to attribute we tend to attribute to people's personalities things that are actually the result of the external environment. And we tend to attribute negative things to other people. That's the typical attribution. That's the fundamental attribution error. We tend to attribute negative things in the external environment to people as opposed to just the situation, external context, and so on. By contrast, we tend to attribute positive things or neutral things to ourselves. So let's think about the example of driving And uh, if you see somebody cutting you off, you know, just cutting you off, you tend to think, oh, what a jerk, you know, just cut me off. But if you are changing lanes and you don't see someone, someone's in your blind spot and uh, you cut them off, you don't think of yourself as a jerk, right? That's Mm -hmm. not a tendency. The CEO, if something happened and the call disconnected with him, wouldn't think of himself as a jerk. That would not be the tendency. So we tend to think in a much more negative way about other people than they deserve. And that's the fundamental attribution error, that we attribute to them external factors that have to do with the environment to them as a personality in a negative way. Excellent. Well said. And let's, on that note, grab our first break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Gleb Sapersky. He's the author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. He joins us today from Columbus, Ohio, home of the Buckeyes. We've been talking about a few of, of the cognitive biases that are in his book. After the break, we'll hit a few more. And at the end, we're going to talk about some solutions. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now... Back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Gleb Sapersky. He's the author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Known as the disaster avoidance expert, he is on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases by developing the most effective decision-making strategies via his consulting, coaching, and training from disaster avoidance experts. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this next segment, 
uh, let's go ahead and, and talk about a few more of those cognitive biases. And then at the, the last segment, we're going to talk about some solutions. One that I'm definitely interested in, especially from the vantage point of my interest in my interest in, in diversity and inclusion, is group attribution error. Oh my goodness, the idea of perceiving that an individual group member reflects the whole groups, or when we perceive that the group's overall characteristics determine the nature of the individuals in that group. So this is an enormous stereotype problem. Help us better understand this one. Yes. So we tend to think that if we see one person behaving in a negative way, the person represents the group as a whole. So there are two elements here that are important. There's the group attribution error, which you just mentioned, and the other one, which is similar to it, the ultimate attribution error, where we basically, we misattribute problematic group behaviors or group behaviors that we don't like to the internal traits of the of the groups as opposed to external dynamics going on. So diverse inclusion is a big area and this is something that I'm an expert in. I give a lot of presentations to diverse inclusion conferences and this is something that people don't tend to consider enough. The way that our, our brains cause us to make bad decisions. when. Diverse inclusion experts often present they use shame and guilt, and this is really problematic when they use shame and guilt because the people who are in positions of power are not necessarily doing it out of maliciousness. They're doing it because of these judgment errors. I'll give an example. I'm often, when I speak about diversity, I speak to white male managers uh, and uh, I tell them that, hey, here are the statistics. White male managers often are promoted, uh, on average, are promoted at a greater rate, offered higher salaries, included within informal networks, given better access than women or people who are not white. So males, white is privilege. You get a lot of power from that. And a lot of white males kind of get up in arms about it. They say, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we do so. We are bet we're great performers. They tend to say, let's talk about women. They say that women often take time off to care for the family, or maybe they talk about how certain ethnic minorities don't fit well within the culture of the company. So those are the, often the things I hear from white male managers when they talk back about these issues. And what I do is I show them studies that control for the time that women take care, go to take care of their families and so on. And they show that white male managers still tend to be perf- uh, promoted at a much higher rate. You know, we have statistics showing that if you send the same resume to hiring to hiring managers and just give a name that's either female or male they will very much prefer to call back the male as opposed to the female if you give the same resumes to hiring managers same resume and have african-american sounding names versus white sounding names they will overwhelmingly pick the white sounding names so this is pure statistics this is what happens you know and there are these things really impact us in a negative way and we don't even notice that they happen just because of these judgment errors that are going on in our minds. So people shouldn't use blame or judgment or guilt. We just have to acknowledge that this is what happens in our minds and we have to work against it without blaming people and shaming people. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said. Very, very important. And I see this too um, in, in the people that I run into, Dr. Sapersky, where maybe they've had one bad interaction with a certain person from a certain country and therefore they're like, well, I don't like anybody from that country. Can't trust them or whatever. Mm. I, I see that very, very frequently. And that is so important. I stand so much to help us unite across the globe versus separate from each other. So I just think what you're, the work that you're doing is so important. 
Thank you so much. You're welcome. So let's go on to another one that I think is also very significant that I've seen out there. And of course, since it's in your book, you know, we know it's in the top 30, um, false consensus effect. So when we overestimate the extent to which other people think and feel the way we do, boy, this is this is huge. So you describe the scenario in your book that a software company was trying to incent the engineers to sell more software by providing incentive pay, and it didn't work. Yeah. Um, so say more about why this was a disconnect here. Sure. So when salespeople and marketing people are strongly motivated by financial incentives. They often work, especially sales, they often work on commission. And the sales manager in this case, in the software company where for which I was doing consulting, wanted to incentivize the engineers to do more selling. This was an engineer, this was something that they wanted to do to get more sales. So outsourcing some of them to the engineers. Now, engineers, you might not be surprised, software engineers are not really into sales and marketing activities. <laughs> and when they were incentivized financially, which is what sales managers would tend to use, that's how they think. That's how the leadership, the, the company leadership, to be clear, the CEO was relatively new and he came from a sales background so he was also kind of behind this initiative and the engineers weren't doing it they were given training they weren't doing it they they really were not motivated to do it so they thought that these engineers might be lazy they're incompetent they hired me to deal with it this is often an area i deal with employee engagement especially with analytically minded employees so engineers hard engineers soft engineers or cybersecurity folks so risk managers and they brought me in and I talked to them and I said, hey, you know, what's going on? I did some studies. I did some uh, peer interviews. And I found out that the engineers, software engineers, just weren't motivated to perform, to do sales. They just weren't interested in it. And I went back to the sales uh, team and the leadership and I told them, hey, you know, the language that you're using and the incentives that you're using, they're just not working for these engineers. They're not feeling it. They're not really emotionally motivated to engage in, the, in this and the sales manager looked at me and he said, software engineers have emotions? <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading that and laughing out loud, yes. It was really uh, a striking moment because salespeople, they are very expressive. They are very extroverted. They express their emotions. Software engineers, programmers uh, are not very expressive at all. They tend to be come off as cold and technical. But of course, they're driven by emotions. We all are. If we look at the research on this, the recent research shows that we're driven by emotions in about 80 to 90% of our decisions and our, behave, our behaviors. So this is the critical thing to realize. We're all driven by emotions. If you want to get, motivate people to do something, you need to figure out what are their emotions and how do you get them to go align with what you want them to do. Because if you just try to appeal to the reason, you will not, it will not work. So that's the false consensus effect. We tend to think other people are much more similar to us than they are. The sales managers and the, the leadership of the company thought that the software engineers were much more salesy than they actually were. So this was the big problem, which what we ended up doing was that this was much more helpful to look at what motivates them. What motivated software engineers was peer reputation, reputation among their peers. So that's what we oriented to. We changed what the reputational incentives, we changed what people were praised for, what they got promoted among their peers by to make sales and marketing much more important. And that was really effective. So that really motivated actually software engineers to do quite a bit more selling and marketing. 
Mm-hmm. Very. This is this is so important to presence this. And listeners, what I hope is happening for you is you're starting to recognize in yourself, as I did when I was reading the book, maybe where, where this is happening in your own life, because that's the beginning of intervening. And what I would also say in the last one you just talked about is, I think this shows up tremendously in this idea of, well, I did this because I think that's what I would want. And mm. there's this idea that, and what happens is, for example, we see women who get passed over for a promotion because their boss is like, well, I would want to be, you know, a little bit less on my on my plate when I was taking mm. care of a child. So therefore, I'm going to go ahead and pass her over mm. because that's what I would want. Well, did you check in with her? Did you, did you did you ask her? Does she want to be passed over because she's got a newborn? Uh, so there's just so much really important stuff in the way that we can start to see the work that you've done and apply it in the workplace and in our lives and, and really make a difference in what how, the, the quality of decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we have time maybe for one more before we go on our next break. So I think the one that I want to talk about here is uh, the the attentional uh, attentional bias. Um, and you describe it as a dangerous judgment error in which we tend to pay att- attention to the most emotionally salient factors in our immediate environment, ones that feel like they are the most critical, whether or not they're actually the most important ones. And you tell us how we can learn to, if you tell us more, we can, we can actually recognize this. What does it look like? How would we know we're doing this? So the first thing to recognize is, our, is our thinking pattern actually matching reality, matching reality in what is important to the other people around us? We can look at the external perspectives of other people, see what they're paying attention to, and make sure that, hey, are we paying attention to the right things? Are we paying attention to what the majority is paying attention to? Because sometimes, often, other people will recognize things that are going on in our environment that we don't. Let's give, let's take a look at an example. Think about back to what happened with Uber. Uber was a very, it's still quite a, a profitable company, not profitable, but a growing company, quite, quite a lot of money. Now, what happened with Uber in 2017, we need to be considered in the context of the Me Too movement. So Uber had a culture that wasn't really addressing sexual harassment, as many other companies didn't at the time. They weren't really caring that sexual harassment was happening inside the company. And as a result, they didn't really notice that the Me Too movement was becoming more popular and it was people started caring more and more about the problem of sexual harassment. And then once word got out that Uber wasn't really addressing sexual harassment, that became a real serious issue for Uber. It went all the way to the top. The CEO and founder, Travalnik, was forced out all because they didn't notice this external change, what other people were paying attention to in their environment. And so that was a really big problem for Uber. That's kind of on the one hand. On the other hand, you'll take a look at what you are paying attention to that may be too much, too much attention to uh, paid to something. And a prominent example is airplane crashes. We tend to pay too much attention to things like airplane crashes, things that draw our attention. And it's violent, it's scary, there's a lot of news on it. But the likelihood of dying in an airplane crash is actually about 100 times less than the likelihood of dying in the same distance covered by car. So a lot of people travel by car because they think it'll be safer. But that's actually not right. It's not safer to travel by car. If you can go from you know, Columbus, Ohio, where I am, to Chicago, that's about seven hours. Many people take uh, cars to go there. I always take the plane because that's the safest way of going there. It's much safer to go to Chicago by plane than by car. And people make the wrong decisions and they die. They die by many, many people die in car accidents every day because they make the wrong decisions about their safety. So both 
of these aspects are important. We tend not to pay attention to things that we actually should pay attention to, and we tend to pay attention to things that we shouldn't pay attention to. So notice where your beliefs are at the position with what experts are saying about safety, about what's going on, about the baseline probabilities, and update toward what the experts believe. Mm. Extremely, extremely well said and useful. And let's grab our last break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We're on the air with Dr. Gleb Sapersky. He's the author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering, Leader, Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. He joins us today from Columbus, Ohio, home of the Buckeyes, he tells me. After the break, we're going to now talk about solutions. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now... Back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Gleb Sapersky. He's the author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Known as the disaster avoidance expert, he is on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases by developing the most effective decision-making strategies via his consulting, coaching, and training firm, Disaster Avoidance Ex- Experts. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So now that we've presenced what, what disasters we can be in every day life and work, Dr. Sapersky, let's let's help these people, shall we? <laughs> so uh, you you give us some solutions in your book, um, and they, I, there are so many different ways that you did this, and I just wanted to, the ones that you think make the most sense, but I did look at the ones about solving misattributions, which are more in the beginning of the book. If you mm-hmm. want to start there, that's great, but let's help our listeners with some some techniques and tools. Sure. So one thing I want to start before talking about the misattributions is a very quick technique that I think is highly important for people to use very quickly, very effectively. It's the five questions to avoid decision disasters that I want to highlight for people. First question, what important information did I not yet fully consider about this decision? Again, what important information did I not yet fully consider? This is really important for the confirmation bias and other related biases that cause us to ignore information that goes against our beliefs, like let's say the status quo bias. You know, should we, should you make the decisions? Should you stick where you are? Should you not? You tend to look at information that causes you to stick where you are as opposed to information that causes you to change and progress and develop in your career or other areas. So important information you did not yet fully consider. Look at this negative information, challenging information, make yourself uncomfortable. (laughs) Second, what dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases that I not here address? So again, the book talks about the 30 most dangerous judgment errors in professional business settings. You can look at a whole hundred on Wikipedia, talks about them in general. And so that's another one. 
Third, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? So think about who would you consider a trusted and objective advisor? What would they suggest you do about this decision? Think about what Elise would suggest you do about this decision. Think about someone you trust. Fourth, how have I addressed all the ways this decision could fail? Again, how have you addressed all the ways this decision could fail? The most effective technique here is to imagine the decision completely failed, utterly failed, whatever decision you're working on, and then think about all the reasons, all the probable reasons why it failed, and then address them in advance, or think about ways that you can address them if it does come up, and retain sufficient resources of time, money, whatever, to address them to address these problems if they do come up or try to solve them in advance. So that's four. And finally, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? Again, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? You want to address this and decide this in advance as opposed to in the heat of the moment when you're implementing the decision because it's very hard for us to pull away from a decision we're implementing already. But if you decide in advance that, hey, if, you know, if I launch this product and it doesn't hit for 450,000 within the next six months, then I'm going to really revisit the decision. So that gives you a specific timeline within which you can revisit the decision. Or if you say, you know, I'm going to launch a job search, and if I don't find a new job within six months, then I'm going to change the target of my job search. That again gives you a certain specific timeline that you can use to change things around. So those five questions are going to be really important. It takes about two, three minutes to ask them, but it gives you, saves you so much time, hours, efforts, money, if you don't, than if you don't ask them. Mm-hmm. I would think if you had those five questions at the at the ready, whenever you were just going through your day, would make a, a lot of a, a lot of sense and a lot of um, value to your life and your work. Um, and, and to that end, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of these the other yes. uh, the other techniques. One that you talk about, which I I do actually use on purpose, um, and this is I, when I'm running into a situation, Doctor Supersky, where I'm on a phone or in person with somebody, they're like, you know, if you sign today, mm-hmm. we'll give you twenty five percent off and I'm like I just don't make decisions like that I'm not going to sign right Mm. today so the first one that caught my eye is just simply delaying judgments since snap judgments are notoriously unreliable absolutely and this is has to do with our internal system we talked about the gut reactions so the start of it this has to do with our gut reactions our gut reactions are to jump our gut reactions are to act that's our intuitive gut reaction and it was very helpful in the savannah environment Mm -hmm. however right now there are very many people who manipulate us and take advantage of us you know sign today otherwise you'll lose out and so on there are many many things like this or of course on the other hand Let's say someone is giving you constructive critical feedback. Our temptation is to say, no, you're completely wrong. What are you talking about? Argue with this person. It's often not a good idea to argue with this person, especially if this is your supervisor. You want to take the time to incorporate the information, listen to it, evaluate it effectively, as opposed to saying, no, you're wrong, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. So in order to turn on our rational thinking, a reason as opposed to jumping with our gut reactions, it takes time. You know, your mom might have told you, count to 10. And this is actually not bad advice. This is what the recent research suggests. This is actually one of those pieces of advice that does make sense according to the research. So count to 10 at least before you make a decision that slows you down, gives you a little bit of time to evaluate. If it's a more important decision, of course, you want to make sure to ask the five questions about it before you jump forward. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the next one that, that you talk about here, which I think is incredibly useful, I, I see it in my in, in my coaching as well. It's, it's consider alternative explanations and options. And this is where, we, listeners, you can all just relate to this, right? We, we experience something and we're just sure we know what happened and why that person did what they did. And, and we make a decision in, in response. And so I think this one is incredibly useful to consider alternative explanations and options of why what may have happened and and what maybe just standing back for a second to ask that question. Yes, and this is especially important for the fundamental attribution error, especially now that you know about it, you can consider it if you take the time to step back and say, hey, what are the alternative explanations here? You know, maybe they maybe the Skype call cut off and maybe it wasn't, maybe the employee didn't hang up and maybe the employee shouldn't be fired is one example. Another example, let's say your boss is cart to you for some reason or other and you now think, oh, you know, you get your mind track and a negative track and say, why, why is my boss mean to me? You know, uh, what's the problem? What did I do? And you start thinking about what you've done over the last day, over the last uh, week. And, you know, you end up going into a spiral of doom and start polishing off your resume. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> <laughs> and that happens. I know yes, people that this happens, you know. I, I know. Mean, I, yeah, yeah. So there are some people who are pessimistically oriented for whom that happens. And I've coached them and, and that that's really helpful to address this sort of spiral of doom to actually step back and say, hey, you know, maybe my boss is having a bad day. Maybe, you know, his child is sick or something like that. So take the time to step back and evaluate the situation and then approach your boss at a later point in time and see how your boss reacts to you at that point. And maybe the, boy, the boss will be in a better mood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think part of what you're really getting to is that we need to suspend surety that we know what's mm. really here and we, we've got it. We know why this is. And just stepping back to suspend our belief that this is what we've come to believe, I think, is incredibly useful. Yes. Okay. It's so a development, we- It's a development of the characteristic of humility, which I think is yes. so lacking nowadays. Yes, and so that's talk humility. about that. Yes, the humility about making judgments about the evaluations that we have of the world around us is incredibly important. And it, again, goes against that intuitive gut reaction. It's a counterintuitive technique to be humble about our decisions. And that's because we tend to be greatly overconfident about both right, both positive decisions, optimistic decisions, and negative, negative evaluations. We tend to be greatly overconfident. We make judgments way too fast, and we need to step back, slow down our judgment, and be more humble about our evaluations. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And so nicely said, too, in your book. It's so easy to understand what, what your, all your examples and the way you go through and talk about them, Dr. Supersky, are incredibly useful. That just helps us really get present to what you're writing about, where are we in that, and what we can do about that. I just found that in, in, in very, very easy to follow. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now, you did talk about a few other other tools there, but I wasn't sure. I want to make sure that you have enough time to go through your, your eight-step decision-making model. So it'd be, maybe do you want to do that next? And if we have more time, get a couple more of the other tools that you talked I, about? I, I want to make sure to hit the probabilistic thinking because okay. I think that's so important that people don't think about this nearly enough. Again, because of our gut reactions, we have a very black and white perspective on the world. We have either a zero or a hundred percent perspective on what's going on. <laughs> you know, zero or hundred, black and white. Whereas we need to be much more humble about this. We need to have much more shades of gray. And that's what probabilistic thinking is about. It's about developing a shades of gray perspective, you know, saying that, hey, Maybe this product, which I'm about to launch, maybe it has a 80% chance of working. And that's not 100% chance or it's not 0% chance. It's an 80% chance. So how do I 
proceed forward with an 80% chance of working or saying, let's say you're making a career decision and you think, hey, you know, I'm going for that promotion it has a 20% chance of working. Most people, if they think that if, if a part of them thinks that, you know, maybe it has only a small percent chance of working, 20% chance of working, they actually won't go for it. It's a black situation. It's a 0% chance. That's how they intuitively evaluate it. Whereas if you have a 20% chance of working for going for a promotion, you might really want to consider taking that chance if you have a good outcome and if it's worth the time. So that's kind of a probabilistic thing thinking approach that we need to develop in ourselves. Another aspect of probabilistic thinking that is incredibly important is to step outside of ourselves, be less confident about ourselves. We tend to be very optimistic about ourselves. We tend to think we're awesome and all our plans will come true and so on. And in reality, may very many people fail. I mentioned at the beginning that about half of all startups fail within the first five years, about two-thirds of them fail within the first 10 years. So if you want to start a business, you need to ask why your business will succeed when two-thirds of all businesses fail within the first 10 years. That means you need to be somewhat more skeptical than you would be about your the success of your business. Maybe you don't want to invest your life savings into it. That's kind of one. On the one hand, maybe you want to prepare more, do a little bit more research before you invest into it. And that's in the, the small entrepreneurs for large companies and mid-sized companies, a big, big, big problem is mergers and acquisitions. About 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail. They fail to create value. I, I want to highlight this. About 80% of them fail to create value for companies. They destroy value rather than create it. So you want to be very skeptical, a skeptical, skeptical of people telling you to do a merger and acquisitions because it's much more likely to fail than succeed. You need to have many more reasons for why it will succeed before you decide to go forward. And that's something that I do a lot of consulting around and many leaders don't like to hear this, but it actually saves them a great deal of money going forward. Mm-hmm. That's golden right there. Just golden. Okay. So we're getting very close mm-hmm. to the end of the show here, Dr. Sapersky. If you could say in maybe two and a half, three minutes, at least high level, take us through your eight-step decision-making model. Yes. So this is a really important decision-making model for significant decisions, serious decisions. We already went for the five questions for everyday decisions. This is for serious decisions. The first step, identify the need for a decision to be made. Again, identify the need for a decision to be made. Boeing failed to identify the need for a decision to be made about the 737 MAX after the first crash. They just kept going as though no problem happened. And that was a very big problem for Boeing. And you don't want to be in the same shoes that Boeing was. Second, gather relevant information from a variety of informed perspectives on the issue at hand. Don't only go to the people who agree with you. Overwhelmingly, we tend to go to people who agree with us because we're going with our emotions. We want to think that the decision we made is right, so we go to the yes people, the supportive ones, as opposed to going to people who would be objective. Trusted and objective advisors get their perspectives, including negative information, value negative information especially highly. Then decide on the goals you want to reach and the vision of the outcome. If you don't know the goals that you want to reach, your decision will not likely not succeed if you don't have a clear vision of where you want. Then develop clear decision-making criteria to evaluate the various options. You want to develop those criteria in advance before the options get into play so you will not be weighed by the options. Next, generate viable options to achieve your goals. We tend to generate many less options than we need to. We settle for the first available good option rather than going for the better options. And we need to go for the better options for significant decisions. 
Next, weigh these options. Pick the best of the bunch. When you're weighing, evaluate the decision-making criteria. Don't hold them as equal. You know, when you're evaluating somebody for a job, sometimes the salary will be more important for you. Sometimes they're fit in the company. Sometimes their expertise. Sometimes their network. So evaluate the various decision-making criteria. See what's most important to you as you evaluate the, the contenders. Next, implement the option you choose. And very importantly, Step eight, evaluate the implementation process and revise as needed. Very important to not simply say, hey, made the decision, I'm going through with it. Sometimes it will make the wrong decision. And it's very important to be able to change your mind. It's one of the biggest, biggest skills that you need to develop and that the book talks about. The ability to be humble and change your mind, revising your decision in the implementation stage as needed based on the evidence. I really appreciate that you took us through that. I know you and I spoke before we got on air that it was important for both of us that we really made sure our listeners walked away with something that they could really use today. Now, listeners, if you didn't catch all that, you got two two options. Get the book, that's one, and also re-listen to this podcast. There's a tremendous amount of value in this. Dr. Sapersky, I'm so glad our, our paths have crossed. I thank you so much for coming on air, being you, doing the work that you're doing, and sharing us with, with yourself, or sharing yourself with us. Thank you so much, Elise. It's been a pleasure. And again, thank you so much for all the hard effort and the research you put into preparing for the podcast. My pleasure, and I'm better for it. Thank you. So listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Gleb Sapersky, his books or the work he does helping professionals avoid business disasters, go to his website. It's disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always get to be via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Lynn Franks, who at age 71 is a true Renaissance woman who has established a well-being hub in Somerset, England, and continues to contribute to human rights, women's empowerment, and climate initiatives. Next week, we'll be on the air with Chris Dunn, talking about his passion to train great managers. See you there, and remember that work is at least a third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.